Welcome back to the Wine Tech Insiders podcast, episode 16. We're back to the news. We're covering the topics um, that are happening in the world of wine tech. Um, and with us, as always, are our wine tech insiders. We have Nick from Wine Owners, Jonathan from Bottle Books. Hello. And Lori from Outshinery. Hi there. Um, the first bit of news, um, which uh, might seem like a small thing, but but I think is maybe much more interesting than even on the surface. Um, Jancis Robinson has has somewhat sold her 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 website um, to Recurrent Ventures. Um, she'll of course still be running content and still be involved. Um, but Recurrent Ventures is a a company that runs a number of subscription websites, including Popular Science, Savar, and Domino, um, and a bunch of others, if you, you, you might know. Um, Nick, um, what do you think about this? What do you know about this? Yeah, so I think it's, I think it's really interesting. Um, I, you know, I gathered, you know, given that Jancis writes for the Financial Times, the, the first question might have been kind of, you know, how come, how come you weren't bought by a publisher? Um, and the answer, of course, is that she was bought by a publisher, just <laughs> not a traditional publisher. And I think that, you know, it's very easy to underestimate the the challenge of a traditional publishing business migrating to a online model. And it's really very exciting to see businesses like Recurrent um, building the new publishing model of today and the future, because that's what they're doing. And, and, you know, the new publishing model is digital first. It's it's based around, you know, services, revenues, not purely content, not and, and certainly um, not purely advertising or indeed not advertising in some instances. So I think that, you know, if you look at the traditional publishing models, um, the, the common ground between them and a business like Recurrent is that they are made up of a number of properties that are acquired or created over time. Um, they are a constellation of little businesses that share a common back office and, you know, a variety of other central functions. So recurrent as a digital first publisher and a traditional publisher would, would probably feel rather similar in that regard. Um, yeah. Certainly if you compare it to companies like Red X, what was Reed Elsevier, who um, declaration I worked for for 40 years, <laughs> so I know a little bit about that market. Um, but yeah, that's what's really exciting, that this is a publishing model that is um, building properties and um, building a very significant aggregate audience of what, 45 million, 45 million um, uh, visitors subscribe stroke subscribers um, and who are monetizing that in ways that are um, much stickier, much more recurring perhaps than a traditional publishing model might have been. Laurie, what, what do you think? 
Well, like what I thought was interesting when I was like, you know, diving into, into it a little bit, it's just so we don't know for how much it got sold, right? Like you're just like, this is not public uh, knowledge. This I'm personally curious, but also when I was, you know, like reading interviews and everything, like how many times um, she mentioned that the technology part is, that um, is becoming more and more, you know, prominent in a business was extremely challenging for her and her little team. Like, it was really like not so much again from like the what transcribed from her interview like not so much like the the content and everything but just one like the how do you make this publication like the content like technology 2021 and beyond right like just like what what is the the, the publication of the future and obviously they're not the only one trying to figure it out right like ask you know any publishers or newspaper out there but I thought it was really interesting just how much it transpired that it seemed like like the technology component of a business that probably wasn't nearly as and no wasn't nearly as big when she started, but just like started to really impact. Um, and also, you could tell like she was not having as much you know fun with that part while recognizing that it was more and more crucial. So I thought it was very interesting how. Often she mentioned tech, 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 tech throughout. <laughs> well, and she also didn't sell to a wine company. So she didn't sell to a large, you know, Gallo or some or 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 somebody else in the wine world. And we're all uh here tech companies that are specifically for wine. And here comes a tech company from the outside and grabs up a kind of an asset in the wine world. Is this, you know, Jonathan, like, is this something that um, what, what what do you make of this part of it? Like, do we think that we're too sometimes too special in the wine world, and then somebody's actually cookie cuttering this um, somewhere else and can come in and sweep in, or or do you think there's something um, about that aspect of it? I I wouldn't say we're necessarily too specific. I think you you know recurrent. There's not a, there's not a tons of businesses out there that are like recurrent. I mean, what makes recurrent, like what makes this media business work is that they're basically, their primary competitor, I believe, is Google. The way that they make their money is by keeping the traffic in-house. And they do that by buying lots of publications so that if somebody's reading popular science, they can put an ad up for going and reading Jansus. And they didn't have to pay Google in order to link them through to jansusrobinson.com. And if you're on jancesrobinson.com, you can take them somewhere else. And so they've built this, this, this sizable business by basically capturing the revenue that Google would normally be, be capturing to, you know, in, in, in ad, ad links and, and stuff. And I think when you look at then like a publication like jancesrobinson.com, um, if you have a choice to be either in a wine specific ecosystem where probably everybody in that ecosystem already knows you and already reads you and already subscribes to you. Um, or you have the option uh, to go where the audience is a hundred times larger. Um, and you might pick up where people might not be aware of you because wine is not their daily bread. Um, I think that's what recurrent offered and probably also saw uh, because I, I don't think they had a wine publication in their stable and now they and now they do so I don't think it's necessarily uh, a, a like a focus or generalist but um, I, I just it seems like it makes sense it's um, 
for what she what she had built, where the platform can grow, and what Recurrent is doing. But in that way, is is Jancis really uh, Nick? Is Jancis really unique? I mean, can can could other um, critics, wine influencers, let's say, follow Jancis, or is Jancis just something you? She, she's just created something unique in the wine, the wine world, and this is the kind of one off. I don't think it is a one-off. I mean, I think what she has created is brilliant and, and has some significant uniqueness to it, particularly in the way that she straddles um, everyday drinking wine and fine wine. Um, um, and, and frankly, you know, to Laurie's point, I think she's built a fantastic website. She's replatformed. I think she replatformed quite recently within the last couple of years to um, sort of bring herself up to speed. But but obviously the overhead of doing that and the realization that that's an ongoing process and not just, you know, an event once every few years. Right. <laughs> significant food for thought, right? I mean, that yeah. that is absolutely the reality of it. I, I think um, what perhaps might have made her particularly interesting to a business like Recurrent was, you know, let's say she's got 60,000 subscribers um, and a very high renewal rate, very sticky. So this is monthly recurring revenue, MRR, and everyone wants that, right? And yet she's built that audience up without doing any advertising at all. Um, to, to, to Jonathan's point. So what happens, you know, what can happen if you, if you um, come on board with a business that just understands how all of that stuff works and can really scale up and build a, a bigger global audience? I think her audience already, by the way, is global. She was certainly um, 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 seeing a growth in North American subscription. Um, but for me, I think the common elements are very sticky, monthly recurring revenue, relatively low churn, significant audience, high value audience, and yet lots of potential for growth based on the fact that that audience was essentially organic. Um, so I think any business, whether it's you know, in our market or in many other niches um, uh, are potentially just as interesting, particularly where you have an affluent audience um, that is, um, you know, that's capable of, 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 uh, of high discretionary spend. Now, one of the things they talked about was more growth in the US. Um, Laurie, you're quite connected um, to, to California and the US. Did, is, is she a, a big player? Is she there? Do people talk about her? Um, like, full disclosure, I did not know about her. Like, I'm not that well-versed, you know, like, dived into, like, you know, sommelier and, like, wine critics, but, um, like, she's not a household name here in the in North America. I wouldn't say so. Like, we have more, like, the, you know, traditional, like, Robert Parker and all of this that just have, like, their, like, it's just... Like more known as name and um like to me like and they look look very differently but like one digital publication that speaks about wine a lot and is growing like crazy is vine pair which uh is you know totally different in terms of like look and feel and everything speak about wine as well but like it's um it's just like very interesting much more i don't want to say millennials because it's just like over overdone but just like a bit more like 
wine as an interesting, almost like novelty product. Like, it, like it's got like more like, oh, I want to learn about it and be smart and just like look cool, very, like very nice illustrations and everything. So that would be more this type of publication that are mainstream um, in North America. What's going to be interesting for me as she grows in North America is how she navigates. And I'm going to say she, she and her team, obviously, um, you know, not to come like the older generation know it all and you should follow my advice. Like I think uh, Vine Pear has been on purpose at times, like very, um, you know, kind of contrarian or just like, you know, making talk, like not taking wine too seriously or just like having fun with it to just get people uh, a buy-in. So just like, I think it's going to be very interesting, like the communication and the growth around it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Jonathan, I mean, this is something that, is 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 out there that the the critics and and Jancis, I guess as we've said is a critic, but she has transformed. She has she has there is more to the Jancis.com. But this this idea of the critics, as Laurie said, the older generation coming um and saying this is a good wine, that's a bad wine. Um uh, majestic uh a uh, uh, independent retailer, a uh, wine retailer in the UK. Um uh, just made an announcement about how they are going to have kosher wines, um, which sort of ties into this, that the idea that, you know, what are consumers looking for? We have Vivino with ratings and what your friends are, are looking at. Um, we have this the kosher wines and vegan wines. And, you know, um, where does that stand from a data point, data points? What are people concerned about collecting um, you know, what should wineries even be thinking about? You know, should they be thinking about growing another grape or or doing kosher or vegan wines or something like that? I mean, or should they be putting wine in a can? Um, you know, what's out there? What what are you seeing? Well, I think I if, if Seb was here, I'm I'm sure he would kind of get on this this path um, uh, that you really have to get to know your customers and know. Um, who is buying your wine? Uh, because I think if if any if there's been any sort of recurring topics over over the duration of our podcast uh, the past few months is that there is multiple paths that people can take to discovering wines that they like, and um, some people find their wines through Jancis, others through Vivino, others through Robert Parker, others through through Vine Pair, and there's. Dif- different audiences um, are um, respond to different themes and different approaches, um, and um, and going into specialized wine segments, I think, does make a lot of sense, especially if you if you, if you know that there's a if you can identify that that need. I mean, for example, um, I think uh, like. Um, Waitrose in the UK, um, they are obviously one of the more premium retailers, um, mm-hmm. and one of their core clientels are um, vegan consumers, and so they make sure that across their entire portfolio, I mean, not just wine, or but also the rest of the stores, that they cater to that, and that they do a lot of due diligence on the wines to know that this wine is indeed a vegan wine and we can stand behind it. Um, And so when you go into the, but I think that's something you have to do when you go into these more specialized niches is that if you go into kosher, you need to be certain that that wine, um, that the wine is, is kosher. Um, 
Um, but it is it is interesting these niches. I mean, we're, we've started working with a large distributor in, in the Middle East where it's not just about kosher wines, but it's about Meruvial wines, um, which have to be treated in a special uh, way, basically kind of cooked um, for, for lack of a better way of describing it. Um, but there is a demand, there is in certain markets, there is a demand for, for these different styles. And yeah. Are you seeing, are you seeing uh, label trends going in one, one direction? Uh, like and, and like I would say, like, so again, I'm made in North America, I think um, much more transparency and in the, not just like the winemaking, but more like the impact, like social and environmental impact. Like this, uh, we're seeing more and more like on the shelf, our channel sees more and more labels where it's really clear if this wine is helping the reintroduction of salmon in the rivers. If this wine is from a sustainable, um, you know, uh, company B Corp, like it's just like all of this, um, you know, a lot of like on the West Coast here, like water management, uh, you know, we hear drought constantly now, of course, it is like gigantic fires constantly. And I think um, while people still want to drink their wine, like they, don't want Nestle to do it at the detriment of, you know, like the bigger um, environment we live in. So I think um, more and more wineries are also following through. I think there was a lot of talk and I know it takes, you know, a lot to change, you know, like your wine growing um, uh, practice, but more and more like, yeah, drip irrigation, to, like wineries claiming like, hey, we, we now use 40 less percent waters than 45 years ago or something like that. And this really has, um, an impact because as a, as a consumer, like, hey, those two wines are pretty much the same price. Um, they, you know, more or less stays the same, but one uses 40% less resources for the same result. This is where my dollar is going to go. And full disclosure, like, I buy like this as well. Like, you know, like, if, if given the choice, like, yeah, I'll, I'll go with like the most sustainable option. So more and more, I think some wineries were doing it earlier, but now they're really making it more visible on their packaging. And, it used and to be it at like the back a, and now it's even at the front of the label or on the it, capsule. Is it is it like a, a trend that everybody everybody's going to a certain label or or is there is there what Jonathan is saying? You have you have uh, labels for certain consumers, you know, with awards on them or whatever, and then labels for other consumers, and it's kind of more splitting. Um, the the way I see it uh, right now, like the way I can observe it, it's just um, I think the biggest, like one group of biggest wineries, they create sub brands and they go all in. But I would then be surprised if they are just evaluating, right? Like it's just like how how is that um, answering? So right now, I find them separated. And do you have like even e-commerce? It's like all about like social, um, you know, social justice and things like that. But I think it's more like almost like A-B testing, you know, in the world of tech. Like if, you know, everyone wants better sustainability practice across the board, like I don't see why not this, you know, could be merged to like the regular, you know, wine production out there. Like nobody will be against it if the quality stays there and all of that. So it's just right now I'm seeing it separated, but like I wouldn't be surprised if it merges, give it a couple of few more years to have like a result. Nick, what do you That's see? That's my theory. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's not it's not an area that I'm massively knowledgeable about, but I but I would have thought, you know, intuitively, you know, I'm I'm with Jonathan in the starting point being really understanding your customer base, and I think with the growth of 
e-commerce across all of the wine segments. I think it's, you know, that provides enormous scope for understanding the kind of um, segmentation that your customers and your broader addressable market are interested in, whether it's kosher wines, whether it's dry farmed wines, whether it's low sulfur wines, whether it's high density wine. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a little bit too geeky and niche actually the last one. But you, 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 so, so I, think, I think the starting point is your customers. The second, the second um, key thing is being able to understand segmentation, cut, uh, your addressable market segmentation to a level of granularity that's never really been possible before and which allows you to do great experimentation, to do A-B testing and all the rest of it. And then, um, you know, I think from a, from a producer's perspective, of course, that there are producers who bottle kosher specific wines and they've been doing so for many years, like classified, um, growth chateaus in 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 Bordeaux, but I but I think I think more interesting is the alignment of the producers with the segmentation that the channels of distribution are understanding in respect of their customers, because that way you have authenticity. You don't have a producer who's kind of you know prepared to be whatever the market wants them to be tomorrow they are who they are and the channels of distribution are doing a better job of being able to profile and segment those um the the wines that come from 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 you know a particular producer or another in far more meaningful ways that align much more accurately with um the interests of the consumer Laurie, um, you were saying that you choose you, you might cho cho choose a wine because it's it, it uses less water, it's better for the environment. Um, what about um, would you go and get your car fueled up at a gas station that has wine in it because it will <laughs> save carbon dioxide emissions? There is um, a fuel that they are going to use in Le Mans this year, which is the 24-hour uh, famous 24-hour race. Um, and apparently it's supposed to reduce um, the emissions of some of the cars by 65% and it is made from wine waste. Laurie, what do you think? Do you think this is... Uh... I mean, <laughs> at first this feels like sacrilegious, uh, <laughs> but you know, French wine to feel like a French race. I'm like, okay, like there's something patriotic about it. Um, I think, again, like I'm not, you know, it's not my area of expertise, but I would be curious to know is like how much did it take to produce that wine, you know, that then we are saving as well, like just like what were the resources involved to make, you know, grapes, wine, that is then not being consumed by human, but then it's just burned as energy. Like it's, you know, like, yeah. So I, I would I be think, curious to see the actual think, add up. Yeah. I, I think they're using the wine waste. So they're using mm -hmm. like oh, wine the, waste. the, the um the lees um and yeah all the all the stuff that's uh left over afterwards and they're they're fermenting that i think but is it too late jonathan are we are we is the world all in on electric and this is uh <laughs> <laughs> well i think it goes back to there's barely enough vineyards to sustain the world's um uh, drinking tendencies um if it also had to sustain our driving tendencies that might be yeah. one step too far uh, so yeah. i think electric has a has a leg up on wine yeah i, I, I must say i love the idea i you know yeah. I, I i spend a period of time in Le Londres, uh each year which is 
Europe's largest forest, right? Um, mm -hmm. Farmed forest. And we see more and more of uh, the plantations being replaced um, um, with, with cornfields. Um, and you know what? If we can, if we can reduce the amount of um, cornfields that are being planted for uh, bioethanol fuels um, and replace it with, with with waste that's a byproduct, something that's already being being grown sustainably, then I, I think that is brilliant and and you know and maybe part of the future at least in in terms of the next 10 or 15 years. What, what I love about it, honestly, because obviously the 24 heures du monde, sorry, it's weird to say it in English. Uh, so it's only just like literally one day, long day, 24 hours race. So it's, you know, it's not a massive impact on, you know, like what the planet is facing. What I do love, though, is how it opens as a possibility, even in the mind of the audience, right? Like it's just like, oh, we didn't even know it was possible. You know, it's, oh, it's either like, inner like oil or it's electric it's like oh like it could also be you know wine waste or something like like it's just like i love how it just possibly like you know opens up a bit like the world of possibilities out there in the mind of like everyday you know um people such as myself like there was just like it's like surprising and then you look a bit you think a bit about the physics i'm like oh i can see it how doable what else is out there and yeah like it's just like how it can get away we are. So I, I find it interesting, almost on a marketing standpoint, but like marketing of science, I guess. <laughs> Way to go, haven't we, in terms of figuring out what yeah. look like. Um, and whether it's electric and whether it's hydrogen, I guess if you work for Air Liquide, you'd probably be banging the hydrogen drum pretty hard. But in the meantime, there's a bit of a there's a bit of a space to fill, right? And, yeah. and don't and don't forget, in by the time by 2050, there'll be a Mr. Fusion. According to back, <laughs> according to Back to Future on the DeLorean <laughs> with the Mister Fusion that they just put the put the oil, the beer, and the banana peel into. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> okay, that was episode sixteen of the Wine Tech Insiders podcast. Thank you again, Laurie from Outshinery, Jonathan from Bottle Books, and Nick from Wine Owners. We'll see you all again in a few weeks. Bye. Bye.